So John 19 starts in the middle of his trial. So I'm going to start in John 18, which Tom went over last week in, in verse 28, and read up to 40 for contextual purposes. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. Actually, let me stop for a second. I'm going to pray <laughs> in opening, since I forgot. Lord, I do thank you for this time we have to spend in your word. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts and what you have to say to each one of us. And even though we've heard this story before, Lord... Pray that it was always impact us and we can always realize the sacrifice that you made for our sins so that we could spend eternal life with you. So, Lord, as we dig into your word, please illuminate it and enlighten us to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself on this, or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19, verse 1 through 3. So then Pilate took Jesus, scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put, him on, a pur- they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. So they were first blank spot there is Pilate has Jesus beaten to placate a mob. Pilate has already declared Jesus' innocence. And despite that, what he's doing here is he's looking for excuses. He's looking for reasons to let Jesus go. So he beats him, and he does this in order to try to get them to say, oh, that's good enough. Okay, he's beaten. He's He's gotten what he deserves. You can go ahead and let him go. Now, scourging for the Romans had three purposes. Now, its first use was to beat the prisoner as a form of punishment. The second was it was used to extract a confession from the prisoner. And finally, in cases of the crucifixion, it was used to weaken the victim so he would die more quickly on the cross. 
And scourging was a legal, legal preliminary to every Roman execution. And the only people who were exempt from this were women, Roman senators, and soldiers. And except in cases of desertion, soldiers were exempt. Now, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, that movie is probably comes the closest of any that I've seen to the realism of what scourging would be like. But I think that it does... I think it's far less than it really showed, or far more than it really showed. I was talking to a coworker, and her friend, or I'm sorry, her friend, her mother was reading a book, Killing Jesus, and they're not Christians. And they were, uh, I guess, in that book, it describes how brutal it really was, uh, the death that Jesus died. And it kind of made, they were kind of like, wow, I didn't realize that's really what it was, because most people see the greatest story ever told, or they see... Um, some of those other Jesus movies, Jesus of Nazareth, and they don't really show anything other than Jesus crying in pain. They don't show the brutality of it. They don't show the ribbons of muscle quivering off of his body as he's beaten with his cat of nine tails and such. So in regard to the crucifixion, the goal of the scourging was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse and death. And the Romans repeatedly struck the victim with full force, usually with iron balls or bones or uh, shards of metal to cause deep contusions and other things like that, um, as I'm sure you guys are all aware. Uh, As the flogging continued, more lacerations would be made. And again, as I mentioned, quivering ribbons of flesh is what would happen. Pain and blood loss generally sent the, the victim into shock. And it also determined as how much blood they lost, how long they'd live on the cross. And generally, the blows would lessen when they're trying to extract a confession. But since Jesus had nothing to confess, and he got 40 blows, nothing was lessened. And he said nothing. And he fulfilled the prophecy that said, and as the sheep before her shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth in Isaiah 53, 7. Now, verses 4 and 5, Pilate declares Jesus innocent a second time. So Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So he's presenting this bloodied Christ to the leaders of the Jews and the mob. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. So your second fill in there for verses 6 and 7. The Jews admit to Pilate the truth. They want Jesus dead because he called himself God. See, they had all this other pretense beforehand. They're looking to dance around the system. Just crucify him for us. See, Pilate, just a little bit of his history, he doesn't like Jews. He hates them. And the Bible gives some insight into different things that he did 
to kind of tick him off a little bit. He brought uh, shields dedicated to Caesar into Jerusalem. The, the Jews had an uprising. He was asked by someone higher than him to remove them. There was um, several other things that he did as well. He seized a number of Samaritans who had assembled on Mount Gerizim, and he had them slaughtered. There's actually several other things that he did, but eventually he was going to be brought before Caesar in Rome. I believe it was Claudius Caesar in Rome. Or no, I'm sorry, Tiberius Caesar in Rome. But Tiberius died before he was brought there. But he did a lot of things to annoy and upset the Jews. And he's at a point right now where he's, he's walking a fine line. He doesn't know. He's, he knows the right thing to do, but he doesn't... He doesn't want to lose his power at the same time. But he sees what they're doing. He, they're dancing around, you know, crucify him, crucify him. Why? And they're given all these different reasons. And finally it comes down to, he called himself God. And he goes, oh. Now, in the Greek and Roman culture, they had a lot of stories. And I'm sure you're familiar with some of the, um, the myths that they had about how the gods would come down in human form. And so... It's quite possible in the back of his mind he's going, okay, I need to check this out further now. So that's why he goes into Jesus and he talks to him again. In verse 8 through 11, it says, Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. Now, he was also afraid for another reason. His wife, according to the book of Matthew, had told him, have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered many things in a dream because of him. So Pilate's already on edge. He's got the Jews who are threatening to uprise again. He's already on a fine line with Rome. His wife just said, don't have anything to do with him. So he's got all this against him. And went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Now in the Greek... It's more emphatic when he says to me. So Pilate is essentially saying, are you not speaking to me? Because he has the power. He's saying, I have the power. You're not speaking to me? He's, it's emphatic. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus makes it clear to Pilate, all the power you have has been given from above. Jesus doesn't have to worry because Jesus knows the Father is in control. This has been planned out from before creation. Jesus isn't worried. Jesus knows Pilate is put there by God the Father. Now, you can bring this to us today. And with the, everything that's happened with the election, and when people were posting tons of things on Facebook... The verse that I posted was Romans 13.1, which says, All authority that's on earth has been placed there by God. If Hillary Clinton had been made president, then all I could say is, God put her there. I can vote against her because I can vote my conscience and I can vote what the Bible says. But no matter what happened, God placed Trump in power. 
I can also say God put Barack Obama in power, which means because he was the president, according to 1 Timothy 2, we should have been praying for him. And I did, and I have very many liberal friends on Facebook who were complain that Trump is in power and you know there's non-Christian Republicans there's non-Christian Democrats there's Christian Republicans there's Christian Democrats it doesn't matter really what party you're part of but it matters the leaders we have it doesn't matter if we like them and trust me there's plenty of politicians that I don't like personally but because God placed them there, I do have to honor and respect them. It says in First Peter chapter 2, I'm blanking on the verse right now. I have my kids memorized and I can't even remember it. But essentially it says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. And the last part is honor the king. Or you could put in there, honor the president, honor the governor, honor the mayor honor the senator. Those are the people in power that God has placed there that we need to pray for. Now, I'm bringing it back. Jesus makes it clear to Pilate, look, God gave you your power and authority. Now, another thing that's interesting here is he says, you could have no, author- no power against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, it sort of looks like Jesus is implicating the Father here, but that's not really what he's doing. Pilate here is a spiritually blind pagan. Now, if you remember back in John 11, verses 47 to 54, Caiaphas is speaking to the Sanhedrin. And he's telling them that it's, and and he's, it actually says that he prophesied that one man should die for the people. Now, Pilate should have known the scriptures He had plenty of time to review the evidence for Christ and to review the scriptures and to see that Jesus was the Messiah. Therefore, it was Caiaphas, not Pilate, who had the greater sin because Caiaphas, he should have known. And yet, because he should have known the scriptures, yet he was purposely blind to it. And because he had long determined that Christ had to die, it was Pilate who had the greater sin. Verses 12 to 16. Let's see. Uh, Verses 8 to 11, I had a blank. Pilate's power is granted from God. Verses 12 to 16 is Pilate compromises the truth for a lie to please a mob and save his position. Verses 12 to 16 says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away.
Matthew 10.28 says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Pilate had an opportunity. He had the truth in front of him. He could have done the right thing. And again, God's sovereignty is in play here. So we knew from before the foundations of the world of what Pilate would do. But Pilate was still responsible for his own actions. Pilate is an example of a man who lacks character and who lacks decision-making when it comes to doing the right thing. He doesn't possess courage of conviction because he knew what was right. And yet what he did instead was, in the book of Matthew, I believe it is, is he gets water out and he washes his hands of the matter and says, I'm, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Pilate was fearing to lose his worldly position. Now the blank beneath verses 12 to 16 says, Do we fear for our worldly position or our heavenly one? I have read a little bit about our possible future vice president, and he seems to be taking a lot of flack for his positions. But it looks like he's standing up to his convictions. Um, I'd have to do a little bit more reading on him when I have the chance. But if he stands up for them, then he is following the conviction he should. He's following the conviction Pilate should have taken. Pilate knew the truth and he avoided it. We need to make sure that we're not so worried about whatever worldly position. It doesn't have to be a great position. It doesn't have to be some mayoral position or even management position. Any position that you have, anything that you're afraid of losing... We need to make sure that no matter what our conviction of who the truth is, and that we follow him accordingly, that we do follow him accordingly, doesn't waver no matter what we're faced with. Pilate was faced with losing probably his whole world. Uh, he'd been in charge of Judea since eighty twenty six, and it's now 32 or 33. So he's afraid of losing what he has. Not that he didn't deserve it. I mean, he instigated all those problems. And from a human standpoint, the trial of Jesus was probably the greatest crime and tragedy in history. A lot of non-Christian leaders, military and otherwise. I think it was Napoleon who said he didn't raise any armies, yet Millions would die for him. But when you, as I said, from the human standpoint, it looks like the greatest crime in history. But when you look at it from God's divine perspective, it was God's will and it was fulfilled prophecy. It's, it's that prophecy in God's word that is probably my favorite evidence for the fact that the Bible is true. You can look at every other book, holy book, or supposed holy book from world religions. They don't have any significant prophecy. And if they do, they're general and vague. The Koran doesn't have any prophecy. 
they have some extra Quranic writings that supposedly contain some. But nothing contains the prophecy the Bible has. So God is fulfilling prophecy so that unbelievers can look at it and go, wow, maybe this is true. And, you know, again, additionally, just because God had this all planned beforehand, it doesn't absolve anybody of their sins. Uh, We're all responsible for our actions regardless of the fact that God knows what they are beforehand. And what's not funny but interesting is in Acts 2.23, Peter, when he's preaching Christ, puts the sovereignty of God in the actions or the decisions of man in one passage. He says, look, God foreordained it beforehand, but you still did it. So Peter puts that together. Now the next section here, Prophecy fulfilled. And there's more than seven specific prophecies in this chapter that were fulfilled. I'm only picking seven because there were seven signs of Jesus that Jesus gave in John. There were seven I am statements in John. There's actually seven statements that Jesus gave from the cross. And I'm just picking seven because it's a biblical number and I can. So this section is going to skip around some of the verses a little bit just to cover these prophecies. The first one is Jesus is crucified his hands and feet are pierced. And that's fulfilled in Psalm 22, from Psalm 22.16. Which, let me get there real quick. Twenty-two sixteen. For dogs have surrounded me, the assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. The Hebrew word used in Psalm 22 for pierced is used in a lot of instances uh, as such things as like an ear piercing. And it's consistent with Christ being nailed to the cross. It, it'd be a, a small nail piercing. Uh, in 1968, uh, scientists for the first time discovered the remains of a man crucified in Jesus' era. The victim was nailed to a cross in a sitting-type position with kind of like both legs over sideways like this with a nail penetrating the sides just below the feet through his ankles right here. Or I'm sorry, just below the heel right here. The arms were stretched out, each stabbed by a nail in the forearm. And that kind of in my mind, negates the idea that he was pierced through the hand where it could have ripped through the flesh. Not to be overly graphic. Uh, There was a doctor in the Hebrew University who said uh, it's a compulsive and unnatural position designed to increase the agony of the sufferer because they have to push up and they feel it whether they're pushing up or whether they're relaxing back down. And the person who's being crucified is also having a hard time breathing. The physical pain endured by the cross is also where we get the word excruciating. It was such a painful and torturous method of death that a word was created to describe it. However, as bad as the physical pain was, and I don't ever want to experience it, as excruciating as it was. We can't imagine the spiritual impact of the cross that was on Christ as well. 
It says in Second Corinthians 5.21 that he was made sin for us and that the wrath of God we deserved was poured out on him. And I really don't know how that would feel. I don't know how to describe it. But Christ felt that, that pressure on him as well, that pain, because all of our sins, all of the wrath of God for those sins was laid on him. And that kind of suffering is not comprehensible, at least not to me. Now, the next blank spot you have here is Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. We get this with from Isaiah. I'm sorry, let me read 17 and 18. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Oh, I'm not going to go there. It basically says, and he was numbered with the transgressors in Isaiah 53. Verse 23 and 24. Let me jump down there. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from top the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. They said this, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they casted lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So verse 23 and 24, that blank says, Jesus' clothing is divided and gambled for. That's in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, Verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So there, Jesus is given sour wine to drink. Now, Jesus didn't accept uh, a pain-numbing drink at the beginning of his ordeal. He was offered a first time in Mark fifteen twenty-three, But now he accepts a taste of a diluted wine to wet his lips and dry throat, presumably to make one final announcement to the world. Verses 31 through 33 and verse 36. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And this is fulfilled from Psalm 34, verse 20. Oh, and the sour wine to drink, that was a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. That should be on your paper, though. It is. Verse 34 and 37. Christian, 
Can you run to the office and grab my water? I left it in there, I think. Verse 34 and 37. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Nope, nope. Thank you. So, in Zechariah 12.10, the Hebrew word used there, and this is quoting it exactly as it says it, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The word pierced there means to thrust through, and it carries with it the, the a spear thrusting kind of implication with it. It's a different word used than that in Psalm 22 for uh, they nailed my hands and my feet, or they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, this was not a typical custom, uh, but in doing this, the soldiers unknowingly fulfilled prophecy. And this is kind of, again, a good assurance that God is in control of these events. He knows what's happening. He knew what happened, what was going to happen. So verse 34 and 37, Jesus is pierced with a spear, is the fill-in. Verse 41, this is the last of the seven. Jesus was laid in the tomb of a rich man. Verse 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And we find out elsewhere that this is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man and a disciple of Jesus secretly. Isaiah 53, 9. Let me turn there real quick. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, if you read... This entire prophecy in Isaiah, it goes, it's called the suffering ser- servant prophecy. It goes from Isaiah 52, tw- 13, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. This chapter, and I heard this listening to a, a Messianic Jew, is not typically read uh, by Jewish people. In fact, they normally skip it from what I've heard. But when they do read it, they associate this chapter not with how the old rabbis Uh, believed what it meant. The old rabbis believed it originally did refer to what they would call Messiah ben Joseph or the suffering servant. See, they thought there were going to be two messiahs. One was Messiah ben Joseph. The other one was Messiah ben David or the son of David or Christ, the son of David. One was a victorious servant. The other one was suffering. So they skip, they skip it, and if they do read it, they think it refers to Israel itself. But if you read the context and you look at it, the certain words in Hebrew, it refers to a specific person, not a nation as a whole, the whole context in the passage. But I'll let you read that elsewhere or at another time. So Jesus was laid in the tomb of rich men. 
Customarily at the time, the bodies of crucified criminals were left on their crosses to rot or be eaten by wild animals. However, because the Jews did not want that displayed during the Passover, the Romans were known at times to grant corpses of executed men to friends or relatives. Joseph and Nicodemus followed the burial customs of that day, or at least the best they could in the short time, because the Sabbath drew near. And it's interesting, and again, I'm not condemning them because I'm not the perfect disciple either, but they were timid, and they were secret disciples. And again, you could almost put on them something close to Pilate. You know, they knew they could have stood up for Jesus. The difference is they came out of hiding, and they basically possibly defiled themselves for the Passover because they touched the body. It says they wrapped it, or maybe they had someone else wrap it for them. It doesn't really say. It kind of seems to imply that they did it, but they wrapped him in 100 pounds of spices, which was the custom of the day for those who were rich. And a rich man like Joseph of Arimathea would probably have a tomb that was carved into solid rock, and this was the tomb that was in a garden near the place of the crucifixion. It would have had a small entrance and probably one or more compartments where bodies were laid out after being mummified with spices, ointments, and strips of linen. Um, As custom of the day, the Jews left these bodies alone for a few years until they decayed down to the bones. Then the bones were placed in a small stone box known as an ossuary. The ossuary remained in the tomb with remains of other family members. And... As I'm sure you're also familiar with, the door to the tomb is typically made of a heavy, heavy circular-shaped stone running in a groove and settled down into a channel so it could not be moved except by several strong men. This was done to ensure that no one would disturb the remains. But these tombs were also rare because they were made for the rich, and they were not, not that many rich. Um, and they were expensive, and so it was quite a sacrifice for Joseph to give it up, but... As he would find out, he only had to give it up for a few days. So there was a positive, a double positive for him. He got his tomb back. Okay, so part three, friends and enemies. Verses 19 through 22 says, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In the book of Matthew, I believe it is, it says that this sign was placed above Jesus' head. And in my mind, that kind of solidifies the kind of cross Jesus was on, where it's the typical one we look at. Other people have said, well, maybe it was all the way up at the top, maybe it was a little lower. But if there was a sign above his head, then he was definitely a little lower, and there was a place at the top for the sign to be nailed. Now, the Jewish leaders objected to the title, obviously, because they felt it was false for one because they didn't believe Jesus was the king of the Jews. But it's also possible they believed it was demeaning because it showed Rome's power to humiliate them and even 
uh, and even torture a supposed king of the Jews. And, you know, Pilate was, he acquiesced into giving them Jesus. But, and again, the scripture doesn't say this, so this is my opinion. I have a feeling he went, no, that's what it's going to say. I don't care. You got him crucified, you got what you wanted, but I'm going to write what I want to write. Obviously, they didn't complain, or at least there's no mention of it. I think that's interesting. So the first fill-in for 19 to 22 was the Jewish leaders object. Verses 25 to 27, the fill-in for there is, Jesus commits the care of his mother to John. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. I think this is, this is nice. Or this is interesting. It shows that even to the end, Jesus thought and cared for others. You know, it was his mother. But if there was ever a moment where Jesus had the right to be self-focused, this was it. And yet he remained, he remained focused on others to the end. And yeah, I don't just need this example. I mean, he, he talked to the thief on the cross that was next to him after he repented. He was in great, a great deal of pain, and yet he felt it necessary to talk to him. He said several, he talked to a couple different people. But it's easy when we're going through pain and trial to be self-focused. And when this does happen, depression can set in. And that's what happens when you get self-focused. You you get tunnel vision to you instead of an outward vision of other people. Now, it says in Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is for the joy set before him. So he had the greater picture in mind. And he endured the cross because of that greater picture. When we're going through trials, it's very easy to get tunnel vision. But when we look at the big picture, that, okay, God has us going through this for a reason. God has me going through this trial for a reason. I'm going through a difficult time at work or with family or whatever the case may be because of some reason. And we need to look past the immediate torture that we're going through to the great plan God has ahead of time on the horizon. That's what we're looking for. And we can even look farther than that and go, you know what, this is a temporary inconvenience to the glory that waits for us in heaven. And that's how far ahead we need to look. Now I heard a long time ago when I was a young Christian that the best cure for depression is not to look at our circumstances but to apply Christ's selfless example. And they gave me an acronym that, again, I'm sure most of you are familiar with. And the acronym is JOY. And that stands for Jesus first. And in Jesus' case, it would be God's will first, or what the Father had for him first. Others second, and yourself last. And I realize that this is an incredibly tough equation to follow. But it's also good to know, according to Scripture, God doesn't give us commands that he doesn't give us the grace to follow and that it is possible. Part four, the last words of Jesus. 
Now, these are the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, and I gave them to you there in traditional order. First one, Luke twenty three thirty four, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For they do not know what they do. Luke twenty three forty three, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, to the thief on the cross. And then John nineteen twenty six to 27, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And then in Matthew and Mark, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this one right here is exactly how Psalm 22, otherwise known as the Psalm of Cross, begins. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And then John 19.28, I thirst. John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished is the Greek word tetelestai. I'm probably saying that wrong, but that's how I'm going to say it. Tetelestai, which is also translated, it is accomplished. Jesus' final words are the cry of the winner or the victor. It would be the cry of the accountant who says, payment is made, made in full. Jesus had finished the eternal purpose of the cross, and he cried, it is finished. It stands today as a finished work. The foundation of all our Christian peace and faith is that Christ paid that debt full in full. The horrible physical suffering he faced, the spiritual suffering, the act of being judged in our place, the cup that Jesus dreaded to take, which was the wrath of righteous, a righteous God, that he trembled at drinking. That was the debt he took on our behalf and paid in full. And he did it so we didn't have to drink that cup. Isaiah 53, 3-5 says it this way. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten or stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It is finished. Tetelestai. And if you ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan says the same thing after the great battle with the White Witch. Sin is conquered, when she's conquered. The last thing Jesus said on the cross, Luke twenty three forty six, according to the traditional order, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So, in closing, it's always impactful when you read it and you realize exactly what he went through. And no movie is ever going to truly be able to give us a visual as to what he went through. There's countless books on the pain 
and the physical suffering. There's the spiritual suffering that we have no idea how that felt. But it's important to remember that it's not just what happened to Christ that mattered, but it's why it happened. And that was so we didn't have to spend eternity in hell. That he died for us so that we could live for him now. That we could forsake the things that are pleasurable in this world so we can focus on what he has for us and the plan and his will for our life. If he didn't die, we'd be dead in our sins and be the most pitiable men and women. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for the sacrifice you made. And I do thank you for your word. And you give us four testimonies about what happened and about what you went through. And Lord, help us to let others know what you've done. Help us to never hide it. But help us to be bold. It says the righteous are bold as lions, Lord, in Proverbs. And Lord, help us to be that. As we don't just talk to others about you, but we live for you and you live through us. And Lord, because of your sacrifice and your first coming, we now joyfully look for your second coming. And Lord, help us not to grow complacent as we wait, but help us to be busy about what you have for us to do. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints and the believers who are here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.